Achieving a balanced lifestyle doesn't have to be a dream, and wellness doesn't have to be an activity you save for downtime. Instead, elevate your personal and professional life with the tips, tools, and insight to holistically support healthier habits. Join me, Dr. Callie Davis, in the Mind-Body Connection for enlightening conversations, inquisitive panel discussions, and illuminating stories from experts in the medical and healing communities who are leading the movement toward a holistic approach to health. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Ryan Curlin. He is top-notch in his field of urology, and he's an amazing surgeon. I'm so glad we get to unpack these really juicy topics with you today. Dr. Ryan and I happened to meet each other recently in New Orleans, in a very New Orleans type of way, at Jazz Fest. Um, we were having a good old time, soaking in the vibes of the music, and as things would go, we ventured off into talking about pelvic floors. And we discovered that we both work in this territory with people um, to help them improve their lives. So we said, why don't we do a podcast together? And today, we're going to dive deeper into that subject matter. So I'm very happy to have you here with us. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. My pleasure. Let me give a little bit of background to our listeners on your training, because it's quite extensive. Um, so a native of Oklahoma, he graduated with honors from Oklahoma State University with degrees in biochemistry and Spanish. He then earned his medical degree at the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine in Oklahoma City, finishing in the top quarter of his class. Following graduation in 2005, that must have been right after Katrina, huh? It was. Wow. So you decided to move to New Orleans then? Something like that. Wow. That's pretty remarkable right there. And then you completed a urology residency in the LSU Ochsner Clinic program. Um, and then two years of subspecialty training in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery in an ABU-ABOG accredited fellowship at the Glickman Neurological and Kidney Institute of the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. He is not messing around. <laughs> he returned to LSU to join the faculty as an associate professor of urology and gynecology teaching medical students, residents, and fellows, and he now serves as an assistant program director for the LSU FPMRS fellowship and the LSU LSU Urology Residency. So I will hand it over to you at this point, Dr. Ryan, to explain a little bit more about your current practice, the things that you really love to do now in your field. Yeah, so I would say probably 95% of the practice now is dedicated to female urology. I see a little bit of male voiding dysfunction, uh, male neurologic uh, or, or neurological issues. Um, as far as surgical, it, it mirrors that. Um, I do some surgical uh, intervention for male voiding dysfunction, but the bulk of my practice is directed at the female patient population. Awesome. And that's definitely where we can connect on some of our experience and our background in the clinic. Um, I love being able to treat female pelvic dysfunction too um, as a manual physical therapist. And I generally find that when we are sitting in the room with pelvic floor PTs, 
um, there's a lot of, you know, now, thankfully, there's a lot of highly specialized pelvic floor PTs around. We don't have a whole lot of them in New Orleans locally. We have a cluster. Um, but we have enough going on in our field now to draw from a good wide array of evidence to back up our treatment methodology. Um, but sometimes I feel what is missing from the pelvic floor PT specialty field is that overall body approach. Like what is actually going on in the spine? What's happening in the hips? What's happening in the foot and ankle when this patient walks and bends and squats and does all their functional motions? So um, when I started to study pelvic floor specialty, I was coming at that from a very orthopedic and manual therapy mindset of treating the spine and the shoulders and hips and everything else, and then diving deeper into pelvic floor. So I look at it a little bit differently. I still see it as like a whole part of the whole body. And I definitely love working with patients who have had chronic stress or a background of trauma that has been interfering with their ability to make progress and gains. So where they're just kind of stuck and looking for solutions. Um, so you are treating in your caseload um, a good amount of patients who've had sexual pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and it, does it vary from like what's causing it? Like, do they have all kinds of different wide varied issues going on? Or do you see kind of like a narrow spectrum of those cases? Well, you know, that's inter an interesting way to phrase that. But, you know, what I find many times is that it, and the analogy I use with my patients is that it, it, it tends to be like a snowball type effect, right? Yes. So um, there was an initial insult, um, be it sexual, be it, some other mechanical um, modality that caused some level of pain, mm -hmm. and then as that continues, whether it was a, 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 a you know an unfavorable sexual experience, and then when continued without resolution, it just compounds, and every time is worse than the time before, until a lot of my patients may end up with complete vaginismus, right? Like where they are un even willing to accept penetration at all. And it's not, it's n involuntary, right? I mean, right. You're, you're aware of vaginismus, like it's just, it's just a, a body response that is, you know, and that happens. Yes. Yeah. And it is, it's like a, those patients experience like a blockade with it. Correct. They're like, where do I go? I'm hitting a wall. Right. I've seen this provider. I've seen this. I, now that we have so much of an explosion of wellness practitioners too, I feel like there's a lot of reaching out in like, I've done acupuncture. I've done like this retreat in India. I've done, you know, like yeah, they, yeah. they really go the distance to try to get past that wall. And, you know, a, a, oftentimes it just starts with very, very basic, or the way I approach it is, okay, you're not even at the point right now that physical therapy is even an option. Right. So in my practice, I will start with, you know, topicals, or I use a, utilize my pharmacology, oh, sorry, sorry, pharmacology friends in, in mm -hmm. compounding pharmacies and using uh, compounded uh, vaginal suppositories. Like, let's start there. Yeah initial relief, then maybe we can get to the point where you can start to tolerate some physical therapy. Um, and again, I, 
am a big believer in physical therapy because, and I tell patients this, like, listen, this didn't happen in one, you know, overnight. It's not going to go away overnight. This is a going to be a chronic thing. And even when we get to resolution, it's still going to require maintenance. Yes. But some of those patients, you know, you have to just start with, I'll start with the pharmacologics, you know, and, and th if that gives them a, a little bit of relief then they can start some easy, and then this is your department, physical, you know, mm -hmm. directed physical therapy. And oftentimes if it gets severe enough, you know, I'll even augment it with like Botox to the pelvic floor muscles so they can make additional progress. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it becomes a, it can be, become a big deal. Totally. And do you, okay, let me back up for a second with the pharmacological approach. Um, I know it seems like maybe in the past three to five years, I mm -hmm. guess it's been, or maybe longer than that. We've been seeing a lot more success with estrogen based suppositories, right? And sure. creams. Sure. I mean, for, for atrophy, for, mm -hmm. you know, postmenopausal atrophic vaginitis. A absolutely. lot of issues, right? But we're even seeing more of its, of its utility even in, in premenopausal females. Right. That there's, you know, some level of, I don't know if it's estrogen insensitivity or, 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 or but maybe the, the increased levels of, of a topical estrogen cream can be beneficial even in you know, um, premenopausal females. Yes. And that's definitely like gray area, kind of murky area to try to figure out for all of us, like in interdisciplinary work, we're like, Hmm, what, we don't have enough research and data to go off of, to be able to sometimes crack the code with the premenopausal. Yeah, that's true. But, but at the same time, we also know from the studies that have been done that topical vaginal estrogen creams yield very minimal systemic absorption when, when measured that I don't think using them vaginally is really going to like push the, the circulating estrogen levels, you know, to it, to a super therapeutic level, uh, as the, the effects of it stay localized to the vaginal tissue. Got it. Yeah. So in vaginismus, in that case, then you would see maybe a better change towards baseline function. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't, and, and again, using topical estrogens for vaginismus, I, I, I don't know how much that's going to help, you know, that issue. I, when I, when I, sorry, maybe I didn't make myself clear when I, when I was talking about pharmacologics, I will use a combination of lidocaine, Valium and, and Baclofen Got in it. a compounded form for a muscle relaxation, relief of pain. And Got that it. is what I will prescribe my patients prior to physical therapy or as a, as a, as a segue to physical yes. therapy if it's at that point. Okay, got it. Yeah, so. estrogen. Yes, I, I don't. Yes, across the board, I'm I'm on board with vaginal estrogen, I, I, and the whole you know discussion we had of premenopausal, postmenopausal. Yes, but in respect to that, I was talking about the the baclofen volume and and some lidocaine, lidocaine. and yeah. that can really help patients make a lot of progress with physical therapy. Wonderful. Yeah. So then, what you're approaching there is really more of the modulating pain. Correct. Getting to, you know, that central nervous system response to pain where we know, like, if there is pain signal coming in, there is going to be tension in that response. Right. And the muscle tissues are, like you're saying, you might see a very severe case where 
we all would like to, as practitioners, go, hmm, what can we do to this feedback cycle to unlock that? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of feeds into the whole concept of the pelvic organ crosstalk. Yeah. Right? Where, like, it, it, you know, you, you kind of, we entered this with pelvic trauma, sexual trauma, but, you know, even like a rip-roaring UTI with really, really bad dysuria where they have that really severe urethral pain can be enough to trigger that upregulation of nerve endings. Yes. That then the next thing you know, they have vestibulitis. Um, and then vestibulitis, you know, leads to, you know, internal pain during intercourse and then full on yes. pelvic floor muscle tension and, and, and then compounding. Yeah. Pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Yeah. Definitely the snowball effect there uh, that you just described. Yep. And you see a lot of these cases that are the snowball effect. Yep. A lot. And how many of them are coming into your clinic and saying, well, I've been doing Kegels like everybody told me to do. <laughs> Yeah. Do you say Kegel or Kegel? No, tomato, tomato. <laughs> um, I know. Yes. And I, I agree with you. And, and I see these patients and I was like, yeah, yeah, yes. Hold on. Slow your roll. Mm-hmm. We can exercise these muscles differently. We're not trying to create tension in these muscles. And, and, and that's one of the really interesting things. And, and I find it really unfortunate that a lot of generalists, both urologists and gynecologists completely overlook it. But, you know, when they say this patient has no pelvic floor muscle tone. Well, of course they don't because they have a spastic pelvic floor muscle. Like every muscle group is just in such spasm that if you remember back to anatomy 101 in medical school, when a muscle's completely contracted, it can't contract any further, right? So they say squeeze and these women can't squeeze. Like, oh, you have no pelvic muscle tone. You need to go get kegels. No, 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 no. You got to get these muscles to relax as you're well aware, which is why I send them to you before they can even learn to recruit those muscles. Yes, exactly. I'm explaining a lot in clinic um, in the terms of like, you know, we, like you just said, we can't take something that is shortened and tightened up and be able to function that way. The muscle needs to be able to lengthen. It needs to be able to relax. And then it can do its work of contracting and being strong again. But I think we both agree. A lot of providers will miss the mark. And, um, I would say we have a long way to go on the reliability and the validity of diagnosing that pelvic floor muscle tension. Right. Yeah. I agree. I agree. I mean, for, I mean, for now, it, you know, it's kind of things we've been taught. I mean, those that are, you know, aware of it, you know, it's kind of just based on muscle tension that you palpate directly. You know, I tell patients like, you should feel like you're thin our eminence. Yeah. Um, and if, Oh, it, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Like yeah. That it, one. It, when you palpate those muscles, it should feel just like, you know, you thin our eminence. Yes. But if you're, if you're able to pluck like guitar strings, those muscles are, 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 are so tense. They're in bands. And when you, and then furthermore, when you push on them, if they're tender, that's kind of what we haven't, I mean, the way presently we kind of diagnose that, right? Yes. Um, and so there's a lot of inner observer variability there, um, right. as well as probably a big lack of, of training in that area of diagnosing it. I mean, they look at the tissue like, oh, you're on prolapse. Oh no, pap smear done. You're good out, you know? Right. And they just kind of move them on because I think a lot of, again, I, I'm not minimizing generalists, but they just don't have the training to look for this or to know to look for this. And, mm-hmm. you know, 
I get the gamut of patients either you know, diagnosed with interstitial cystitis or diagnosed with, I, mean, I love, used to love the old one, female urethral syndrome, um, uh -huh. which is basically a crazy hysteric woman. Right. Um, or just a plethora of, of things that are just misdiagnosed, right? And it all yes. comes back to the pelvic floor. And I, I think I see is the big one, you know, everybody's like, oh, you go, you go frequently. Well, you can go frequently because you have pelvic floor dysfunction, right? And so I, I just think that's something I would like to raise more of awareness of to look for or to think about in, in you know, these varied presentations. Totally. I mean, there's so many recurrent interstitial cystitis with pain, pelvic pain, mm -hmm. that come in and they're like, you know, it's been rounds of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. It's been... Um, you know, no true functional assessment has been done in many cases. Right. Mm -hmm. and, and the reality is I, I probably spend most of my time talking patients down out of their diagnosis of IC because it's they once they get it, right. they kind of hold on to it. Like, this is my diagnosis. This is what I have. This is the reason of my problems. And I tell them, no, this isn't your problem. You don't have any symptoms that are consistent with the International Conscience Society's right. diagnosis uh, or, you know, um, um, uh, what's the word? Criteria. Uh, criteria, yeah, thanks. Mm -hmm. Criteria for interstitial cystitis. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry that you got diagnosed with that, but that's not what you have. And you should be thankful because we have zero treatment options for that anyway. Right. Right? What you have, guess what? You have pelvic floor dysfunction. We can treat that. Right. You can do a 180 and like have a normal life again. I love that you're telling your patients that's very informative. Um, it also kind of lends itself to the complicated territory that we're in, right? Yeah. With pelvic floor dysfunction. So we can't really call something pelvic floor dysfunction without um, acknowledging that there's so many parts involved in it. It is the brain and the nervous system involved in it. It is the emotions involved in it. It is Correct. the muscle function involved in it. It's the gait pattern. It's, um, you know, the strength and the flexibility. So, like, it's broken down into a really wide array of things. And um, I think that we struggle sometimes as providers to be able to, you know, we all want to have that patient walk out of our clinic and be assured that we have a really good grasp of all those things going on in them. Um, but I've also learned that in many cases, I that patient needs to be in the care of a mental health professional too. Um, you know, their daily life might look like depression, anxiety, inability to function at work, inability to maintain relationships and intimacy. So they have like these big compounded issues, right? In the snowball cases. Yeah. And I've loved the patients that I can be able to collaborate with mental health on their care. But um, we know that New Orleans has kind of a lack of mental health providers yep. in general. We don't have the numbers and sometimes the ones that we have have like really long wait lists to try to get into. So what do you think about that part of the spectrum? No, I completely agree. Um, I find it very unfortunate that 
a large percentage of my patient population, um, you know, again, working for the state, I see a, a fair amount of Medicaid patients. Mm -hmm. um, and there just aren't many outlets, either, uh, honestly, for pelvic floor physical therapy or for um, mental health, right? Um, and then what I find is that even in, uh, with many of my insured patients, access to mental health may not have the coverage that they think that they have. And, you know, when they see the price point that they're, you know, presented right. with, they're somewhat hesitant to, to engage, to go down that pathway, even though I encourage them, listen, cognitive behavioral therapy in this scenario is going to help you a lot along with as an adjunct to the pelvic floor issues, because again, this is multifactorial, right? And yeah, we just, our access here isn't what it should be um, or could be. Yeah. And do you, what other models could we rely on in other cities? Like, are you aware, I know with your Cleveland Clinic background and training, um, and you, do you collaborate pretty often with your team up there that you had trained with or? I mean, from time to time, I, I you know, I, I will call to question to, you know, get some some input and feedback, but again, it, I felt like I was in, honestly in a bit of a bubble when I was training there compared okay. to where I am now. Um, you know, I, people flew all over from all right. over the world to get treatment True. there, so money was never an True. option for any treatment modality. Um, and then coming back here to the Deep South, where you know people are still struggling to eat, you know that we have you know food poverty here in America is still crazy, but yeah. So patients are like, okay, am I going to use this, buy this medicine or am I going to eat, you know, or am I going to go to physical therapy or, or mental health provider, or am I going to eat? And so I, I felt like, yes, I mean, I love training there. That was amazing. And, and, and the, and the resources that we had at hand were amazing, but that's not my current reality. And, you know, so I kind of have to tr adjust and, and within the, the, the system, which, that I'm in now, and it's not just the system. It's 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 honestly, the 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 region, the the area, of the country that we're in, and and it, the poverty here is is a lot more than what I experienced at fellowship. So no, I don't have the same resources, mm -hmm. which is unfortunate. Yeah, totally. And that's it's how would you see that um, evolving in a good way into the future of being able to handle those volume of cases that really need the interdisciplinary intervention um, and the mental health access, but can't afford it. Wow. I don't know. Like, again, kind of on a daily basis, I just say, you know, we have to try to do the best that we can, you know, and again, Her patient. It, there, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there are some referral sources, but the reality is it's a wait list, right? They just yes. get put on a wait list. And it may be two months, it may be six months, you know, before they get seen. And, and, and that's really unfortunate, but that's the reality of the space in which we practice. Um, it's not something that's presently prioritized, right? Because it's a quality of life issue. It's not life or death. Um, it's quality of life. And so it's, I feel that it's prioritized differently within the system that which we practice. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, those that can't afford it, unfortunately end up waiting yeah and in ordinate amount of time yes so this is a this sparked something in my mind about um our local field 
of OBG too. Yeah. Because of Medicaid population, the inability to access what they need for resources. And like you said, making those decisions, like how can I decide on seeing more providers when I'm having a struggle, you know, with my daily finances. So, um, I've talked to a few different physicians that would love to be able to refer the patients that have less resources into like um, a large mind-body type of group, like yoga, for instance. Okay, yeah. You know, like yoga for pelvic floor and offer it at like either low cost or sliding scale or no cost, somehow pull in some volunteers and begin to teach and train mind-body techniques to this population struggling with pain and Mm -hmm. complex issues. But, you know, I don't want to say like, oh, just go to yoga because that's not going to solve their problem. But it is going to teach them some tools that they can use at home. Um, And maybe they'll engage with it in a way that they begin a daily practice with it. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I have had several of my patients that have also utilized yoga along with their pelvic floor physical therapy to help in the muscle relaxation or in the down regulation, down regulation in the PT term. Um, and you know, much like we were talking about the lack of access because of costs for therapists, psychologists, one of my good friends, um, runs Nola vibe yoga. You can get sessions, with her throughout every day of the week from about $5 to $10, which I don't think is out of the price point for most people. Right. Um, most of them are in outdoor locations. There's a few indoor venues they utilize as well. Um, and that's would be a good outlet for a lot of these, a lot of our patients needing the intro into yoga to start the healing process. Yes. I love that you just brought it down to the healing process because it is a mind-body pathway. Correct. When they're taking a yoga class in a group where the intention is to slow down and breathe and focus on their body um, and connect into their body, that is like a toolbox that's beginning to emerge and grow with their body and mind connection with their body awareness, with their breath awareness. And when we start to tease out these functions in a chronic pain population, if they can just do breath exercise and body awareness exercise, that can have a huge positive impact on their outcomes with pain. I agree. And let me ask you a question now. What what are your thoughts or opinions about a, well, let's call it a controversial um, topic about actually carrying stress and pain in the pelvic floor? I love this. So I have two mentors in this field. Um, Lynn Schulte is a pelvic floor PT in Boulder, Colorado. And Tammy Lynn Kent is a pelvic floor PT who's written The Wild Feminine, which is an amazing resource for 
uh, women living with female pelvic dysfunction because she's a pelvic floor PT, Tammy is, but she's also this like energetic woman of, you know, like indigenous informed cultural, um, ancient wisdom to access. And so through both of their knowledge and training courses, I've been able to access a broader understanding of how we do carry stress and emotional tension in our bodies and specifically the pelvic floor region. Um, and so a long time ago, are you familiar with, um, the body keeps the score? Yes. Okay. So that started to really kind of wake up my mind in like, okay, there is a lot of trauma based pain walking around. Um, and when I was able to dissect it more and follow people who were really pelvic floor focused, focused in that area, um, then I started to be able to see that in my patient population, it just blew up. Like, you know, whenever you're expanding your awareness of a certain issue mm -hmm. and then that patient walks in the door and you're like, I see this totally differently. How did I not see it so clearly before? Right. And so the pelvic floor tension cycle is very tied in to our experience of stress. Right. Um, and we don't have great empirical evidence for this. This is why it's controversial. It's why it's hard to sit at the table as like a scientifically minded Western trained medical professional and talk about energy and emotions and the imbalance that happens in our health, in our systems, in our bodies, um, whenever stress is not regulated or when we've had traumatic experiences in our past that are still not healed. Mm -hmm. And so with my female patients, I'll commonly say like, we push that stress down into our pelvic floor and it can stay there and it can snowball. Like we were talking about before in the physiological way, um, it can snowball in a way that a person may want to block it off deny it, push it down more, mm -hmm. um, not access it. And then we end up with kind of like a disconnect going on between their body tissues mm -hmm. and their daily waking awareness. You know, and again, I think in this area, that's doubling back to the yoga thing. I think this is where that can really be utilized in trying to reconnect with mm -hmm. your body really learning to let go of the bad energy, the bad yes. stressors, and bring your mind-body connection back into, you know, to your um, center, right? And yes. I think that it's a, it's a step, again, I'll use, it, I'll use the word again, in, in the recovery of pelvic floor function, sorry, sorry pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Yes, yeah. totally. And I think, okay, maybe this is just my lens being in the PT corner that that particular piece of the puzzle is overlooked sometimes, right? In like conventional pathways in medicine. Very, very much so. I, I, again, I, I think we touched on this earlier. I just find that we get so focused on 
palpable or tangible pathology mm-hmm. that we kind of sometimes forget about the emotional side, right? Like we're, like, I'm a surgeon, like I don't, you know, but in doing what I do, I kind of feel like I'm 50% psychologist or psychiatrist, you know, in, in, right. in talking with my patients um, because there's, there's as, as much of a psychological component as there is a physical pathology that's, that's going on, right? Right. And so you have to address both if you're going to get them to a point of healing and, healing and wellness. Yes. Um, and, you know, again, I'll just give you props because this is an area where I am able to diagnose but inept to treat, mm-hmm. right? Like I tell my patients, I know what's going on, but this is out of my wheelhouse. I, I can't treat this. And this is why I'm glad we have the great physical therapists we do have in the city. I wish we had more, and maybe one day we will, but I'm very, very fortunate that I can refer patients to good physical therapists to get this treatment and set, you know, start them down the pathway of healing. Totally. The power of touch, that's a big topic that we talk about a lot in our field. Um, That, you know, there is something that we may never be able to quantify, that energetic power of touch. Whenever I'm with a patient and they're on my table and I'm able to be able to access their calming state physiologically where their parasympathetic nervous system is like, oh, okay, I'm here. Yeah. <laughs> I can breathe deeper. I can, you know, rest and digest. I'm always telling my students, like, just remember rest and digest. Like, when we are safe <laughs> and our needs are met and we're not having to run from the tiger or provide food for the family on the table that night and we don't know where we're going to get it, uh, when we're in a state of safety, then we can digest our food. We can relax our muscles. Um, so I try to create in the clinic a, a feeling of safety and calm um, in the moment. And I want that patient more than anything to be able to access that, remember how that feels, and come back to that at home as a home practice. Um, so we can walk down that path in very many different ways of breathing techniques and stretching strategies and body awareness and proprioceptive input, um, self-care in terms of internal myofascial release. We Mm -hmm. use a lot of the intimate rose pelvic wand Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to do trigger point release with breath work. And it's a lot of information going on in a session. Right. Too much information overload sometimes is going to take away from that nervous system's ability to relax. To relax, yeah. Yeah. And I, I try to do my best in when I send patients to physical therapy to tell them, okay, this is going to involve internal work. Right. Okay? They're going to be getting up in there. Okay? Right. Okay? Like, yeah. <laughs> like you're going to be wanded. You're going to be palpated. Right. Um, and they're going to teach you how to do that as well. Right. You know, and, and that's one of the unfortunate things I, I find also in this, in this field is that I, I find it very unfortunate that so many women don't know what's down there. I know. And it's, it's so funny. And this is, this is I, I'm digressing, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I, I started watching this really tacky um, HBO special called Milf Manor. Okay. And it's really, really <laughs> egregious, but it's like 
like mindless fodder where these mothers are dating their sons and there's a segment where the mothers are educating their sons on anatomy. And I find it really, really interesting that most of the moms didn't know some of the anatomy, nor did their sons. And I just, I don't know, I just find it very reflective of, of the culture and like, okay, you have this dysfunction, but you don't know what's down there. And right. you, I, I don't know, I just, I just find like a big, big like education gap, like yes. awareness gap. Like, it's huge. Like, it's, it's part of your body. And, yes. and like you ignore it, don't, or whatever, but, but it's your problem now because this, this is the, you know, what we're talking about. Like this is your problem and you don't even know what's there, right? right? Like right. Do, do you see that like oh, in the totally. patients that come to you? Many times. I have a pelvic floor model sitting on my desk that is always there. I mean, it, the pelvic floor model for me has become such a thing for me to hold on to while I'm talking to a patient in education because I use it so often to be able to, um, you know, not only visualize the muscles and the anatomy, but also to just be like, this is our pelvic floor. We need to look at it more. We need to sit in the room with it more. We need to become friends with this pelvic floor because we're at a state and time in 2023 where you're exactly right. There's many women walking around that do not know their anatomical parts. No, not at all. And that plays into that disconnect that is kind of like that soup of, okay, if pain is triggered, then we don't really have a body awareness going on and our neurons are going to be, it's going to be a different map cognitively in mm -hmm. the brain for the sensory part of the brain and the sensory motor connections that are coming in. So when we can more readily like enhance that anatomical education of the general population and get them comfortable with knowing their own body language, speaking about their body parts, being able to like own it, yeah, feel it. Um, you know, I love to encourage like mirror self-education at home. Just look at it. Like we need women looking at their pussies. Exactly. Or <laughs> even be able to say that or yes. even say vagina. Yeah. Let's like just say most of them vagina. can't even say vagina, <laughs> yes. let alone pussy. Yes. And, and in the deep South, um, you know, growing up, like my mother did not tell me the word vagina. No, I have a patient that calls it her monkey. Yes. And I, and, and I stopped her right there and I said, ma'am, we're going to use adult language Thank in this you. clinic. This is your vagina. And we refer to it as your vagina. Thank you. Cause <laughs> I will not refer to it as your monkey. <laughs> Yes, and this is rampant. Yes, it is. This is not Deep a one-off. Deep South, one God bless. Yes. <laughs> so we need to start saying more, but I'm just going to start saying it more in the grocery store, actually. Vagina. Yeah, vagina. Well, I challenged one of my fellows to embroider me a scrub cap that says the vagina is not dirty. Nice. Because that's the other thing I get into, like abdomen vagina. They're like, oh, got to change your gloves. I'm like. Everything I'm putting in vagina is coming up through the abdomen or down from the abdomen into the vagina. Like, so yeah. tell me like... Same canal. Yeah. Leave me alone. 
<laughs> right. And just like you were saying about the urethral dysfunction, yeah. let's hit on that for a second, the okay, hysteria. Yeah. yeah. So like, you know, back in the day, old school urologists um, used to have a term or a diagnosis of female urethral dysfunction, which basically was just treating what they perceived as female hysteria, complaints that they couldn't, didn't know what was going on. Let me rephrase that. It wasn't complaints they didn't know. It was complaints they didn't care about. Yeah, and even worse. it was the female patient that coming back and back to the office, and they're like, "Let's placate her." Oh, okay, this is how we'll do it. We'll dilate her urethra up to like a thirty-two French, and that will placate her, and she'll be better. Um, and I, I've, you know, I first started practice here. Um, I had many patients that would come to me from seeing older generalists and be like, "I just need another dilation," and I'm like, "What?" Like, yeah, and then I'm good for a while. I was like, okay, the problem is not the problem. And I don't know what the treatment was or what you perceive the treatment being, but like, I will not do that. That's barbaric. Absolutely not. That's like, I'm not a Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. There's no way I'm dilating your urethra for no reason. Um, and, but that was common practice in urology back in the day. Um, and so... And explain to us the width of like the 32 French. Oh, and 32 French. Oh, oh, okay. So... Mm-hmm. A standard catheter you would put in would be about 16 French. That's a that's a standard catheter mm-hmm. size. That fits the, like the normal anatomy. Correct. The female urethra easily accommodates that. Yeah. So take that and double it in, in, in diameter. Um, and that is what was gradually, you know, sequentially uh, dilated up to, um, which is barbaric. Yeah. It's almost mutilation in a way. Yeah, in a way. Anyway, but it was it, it was okay. It was okay because you know they're just good old boy urologists, and that's what they did. Right. Um, I have a very different viewpoint, and uh, and and thankfully, no no currently practicing urologists that were trained, you know, beyond the dark ages are doing that. But there's right. still a lot of dinosaurs that refuse to retire that are still doing that. But um, yeah, yeah, that's where. The new has to start replacing the old yeah, framework. But, but they but they had no clue what they were even doing. Like, they didn't even know why they were doing it. They had no clue that the vast majority of these females, the problem was the pelvic floor. Yes. I mean, you're a urologist. You should know the pelvis better. Everything exits through the pelvic floor musculature, the urethra, the vagina, the rectum. So when there's pelvic floor dysfunction, you get pathology and all of those end organs, right? So, but they never put two and two together because largely I don't think they cared. And they didn't want to say vagina. They didn't want to say vagina. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's probably fair. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to do training lessons and like, let's say vagina to the medical, yeah, and, you know, and the it, dinosaurs. When I think about like how many females get, were treat, have been treated over the years, by urologists, it's it's really unfortunate that they really had a very very poor perception of female function, sexual or otherwise, mm-hmm. right? Um, and gynecology, I think, as a whole, did a better job at that. But even when it comes down to this level of dysfunction, I, I think it's a bit more. Um, I guess now I would say some specialized, but they, they, in, in, in their training, 
unless they were in a unique program, they just didn't get directed training in this area either. Right. Right. They, they are all about the vagina. They could say vagina. Mm -hmm. Um, but this is, this facet of the pelvic floor they overlooked. And, and, and again, I'll give you a great surgical example. The vast majority of generalists with a, with a fourth degree laceration don't know how to, uh, reconnect the, 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 the anal sphincter, right? right. They, they, they don't know how to identify the, the circular musculature and, and do a sphincteroplasty. Right. Um, they, they, they whip stitch some shit to, oh, <laughs> le, le, okay, we're going to segment can, they, they whip, they whip stitch some stuff together mm-hmm. and, you know, call it a day, you know? And, and, and again, it's just, it's training. Like I'm not hating on any one. It's just a matter of training. And this level of, of pelvic floor dysfunction is kind of glazed over in, in a general residency because right. there, there's not time for it. Right. Right. And do you, do you see that that could change though? Like bringing in topics like sexuality. Um, I really love like the sex ed part of our pelvic floor field that, you know, it's kind of like you were speaking before about you're in a role of combining mental health strategies with your approach as a physician of, um, being able to help that patient in the holistic framework. I feel like, um, sex therapy is that field too that can integrate with us oh 100 percent agree mm-hmm. the, again in this market the downside is there are there's such a paucity of providers within that space that it's almost impossible to get patients yeah you know and they're not in the insurance network triage to them and yeah. they're not in the insurance so it's all cash right, right? and and again I'm not in Cleveland. I don't have I don't have people flying over here from Saudi right. to be treated, you know. And so the cash flow is a big issue and a big impede uh, impedance to that type of therapy. Yes. Yeah. And so, what if female sexual dysfunction became a hot topic, like in our capital city of Baton Rouge? in the lawmaking body where they were like, have, oh, this is actually a huge ha, issue. Have you met our governor? <laughs> he does not say vagina. No. Yeah. Female sex with dysfunction? No, that's never rolled uh, yeah, off his what's lips. what's that? Whatever. Mm-hmm. No, actually, I like her governor. I'm not. I'm <laughs> I know. We're not hating. But we do... I, I often look in the mirror at myself and say, you know, I need to advocate more. I need to get the message out louder to people who are in places that can influence things like what's covered by insurance and what's not covered by insurance. How can we have better access to the care that people need whenever they're dealing with something so pivotal? Like you said, it's not life and death, but whenever they cannot enjoy sex, that is a huge part. I, I would say that it's one of the biggest quality of life issues. Yeah, but convincing the insurance companies to do anything... To treat it as on, important. On, on, on that line? Okay. 
if you, if you feel marginalized as a female, think about how much more men are given the attention in healthcare for mm -hmm. male issues. Mm -hmm. And the fact now that now the ED does, sorry, ED drugs are covered. Now, they've uh -huh. all, they've, granted, they've all gone generic, but even when they were, like, there was the, the coverage, like, they just didn't prioritize that. So right. do you think they're going to, like, really give to, oh, <laughs> cares about female sexual dysfunction? Right. No. By the way, the pharmacological treatment of vaginismus you went over. Yeah. Um, and you talked about Botox in some severe cases. Yeah. What, is there any pharmacological management of, like, you know, a case where they can't have an orgasm or wow. in the pleasure circuit. So now you're hitting me at a level that I need to do more research in and, and get into more. Um, and I've just recently started talking with my newest partner about going down this pathway because this is a very, very under addressed area. Um, are we going to talk about ketamine? <laughs> Um, that, um, we don't know, I mean, we don't have a lot of great research about, right? Mm -hmm. There were, there were some drugs on the market that seemed promising that, you know, when, once they got through phase three trials, they never made it to market. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the majority of the space is still a lot of off-label treatments. Um, and this is an area where we can do another podcast in the future, um, to further it, like, double back on and hopefully we'll uh, have a better conversation. <laughs> yeah, that's because I don't know what's out there in that part of our fields. Yeah, there's, there, I mean, honestly, there's most of it's off label and, okay. and, and, and cash pay again, right. being off label. And so, but there's still space for it. It's still something that's very under addressed and, and we need to do a better job in this city, uh, about, you know, with ad addressing it and we're going to work, we're going to work on that. Yeah. That's yeah, great. For sure. That's something, well, whenever you were talking about drugs for erectile dysfunction yeah. and that coverage and the change and that the shift, and that's like in male centered care, then it like, it just sparked that thought. Oh, the billions, like, wow, the billions of the... dollars that were made. Yeah. Right. For an erection. Right. Yeah. 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 To further cause more female pelvic dis muscle dysfunction. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Let's get to the. Because she, she wants it eight times. Yeah. So wait, actually, I've. So enlighten me on this. Because are you saying that in a case where a male takes Viagra, and then they do, they just have like rounds and rounds of sex. Yeah. And then you would see that patient as like, that was the triggering episode to well, their I mean, pain. It, that, that could be mm -hmm. right. Any, yeah. any, ins yeah. honestly, any inciting event, like if it was good for a while and she said, okay, fine. One more time. And you know, mm -hmm. that time was unpleasurable. That could start that cascade that we were talking about, yes. right? The yes. pelvic organ crosstalk and everything kind of like tensing up and then never really recovering. Right. Um, you know, because let's be honest, like if, if they don't have some lube, she ain't going to be like that wet for that long. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Like we went through three bottles of lube. Yeah. Yeah. No. 
So, okay, with this, because you just touched on something that we've been coming back to, the disconnect. Um, And that has a lot to do, like I'll pull on my Tammy Lynn Kent. I love her, the wild feminine. Um, So that emotional side of the pain experience um, during intercourse and how a lot of females will, you know, we'll talk about this in like girls circles. This is not just clinic talk. This is like, oh, you know, it was kind of hurting, but you know, I just kept going. Yeah. So there's kind of a sentiment of like, why would I say anything or stop or stop him from having an orgasm or her, right? Like, yeah. let's just open it up. Um, and I'm not going to say anything about my pain because I either feel ashamed about it or I'm embarrassed or I don't want to affect my partner's pleasure. Um, so then there becomes like that again, it's a kind of a foundation for that snowball to begin to cascade. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, there's huge emotional components of that. Absolutely. I mean, I've never talked about this in girl circles, but I believe you. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like just kind of, what is the old kind of saying about it? Like just shut up and grin and bear it. Yeah. Like act it. like you're having fun. Yeah. So this is a, like, yeah, we're touching on a societal and a gender issue in a way there, I feel yeah. like. Um, Occupy your role. Yeah, right. Or the subservient, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, my purpose is to, and I feel like this was my mother's generation more than ours for sure. Yeah, I think there's a lot more liberation now, but there's yeah. definitely a carryover. Yeah, there's a carryover. We were ingrained with that right. as children. So then, or, you know, taught to feel that masturbation was like a bad thing. Therefore, they don't know anything what's down there. Right, sure. exactly. And that sex is something that is like um, obligatory. Mm-hmm. And so I have to, in some patient cases that are like very conservative, we're talking about, you know, my Baptist North Louisiana upbringing in the Bible Belt. Mm -hmm. Don't talk about sex when you're little. Don't even act like you're going to masturbate. What is masturbation? God bless Jerry Farwell. Um, so in this type of patient case that I can identify with, because that was kind of my background that I had to evolve from and grow through, then I'm like, okay, wait, number one, we have to come to this belief that like your pleasure is important. Mm -hmm. Your pleasure is a part of your body. It's a part of something that you, um, have a right to experience And um, your pleasure involves the brain and body in these very intricate ways. So we want to be able to, again, get that comfort level and remove the stigma and be able to say vagina and pussy and all the words Mm -hmm. and um, be able to embrace all the parts. And that can be a very long process for someone who's been ingrained in their culture. Sure, Mm -hmm. sure. Absolutely. What helps with that other than coming down to Mardi Gras in New Orleans and being liberated? <laughs> wow. I mean, again, that's a, that's a deep question for a, a surgeon. I, 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 don't, I don't know that I can 
tell you, I, I, I don't know that I know. Um, <laughs> we just I, I, think, start... I think of a lot of, you know, again, I think a lot of it is just exposure and, 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 and getting out of your comfort zone and, 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 and opening your mind a little bit and realizing that not everyone thinks like you think and mm-hmm. understanding how other people think. You know, again, if I can digress to a TV show, right? So the newest, the last episode of, um, and just like that, you know, the Sex and the City um, yes. reboot, whatever. So Miranda has decided she's either a lesbian or bisexual. She hasn't completely given us the, all the details, but she is in a relationship with someone who defines himself as non-binary. And comes to find out that her love interest has a basically a sham marriage or a scam marriage for whatever reasons. And they all end up in bed one night. And he kind of wakes, they're getting it on, and he kind of wakes up and puts his arm around her love interest. And she sits up and she says, I don't know if I'm okay with this because it's something new and I haven't thought about it or if I'm opposed to it. Mm-hmm. And she thinks just a few more seconds and she realizes it's because it's something new and she hasn't thought about it, but she's not entirely against it. Right. So she opened herself up to something. And again, uh, please, to the listeners, I am not promoting throuples, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but she was opened her mind to something different. Yes. And, and again, we're not talking anything on that level, but what I'm saying is that sometimes you just have to think that people may think differently and that's okay, you yes. know? And, and, and that's how you can get out of that mold, right? Yes. You can learn to pleasure yourself. You can learn to understand what your vagina is, what your vagina entails, what all is in there, like how different areas feel, what the different muscle groups are, which is all of which physical therapy involves is like targeting different muscle groups. When patients tell me like, oh, I'm going to do Kegels and like, no, 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 no. You're not going to be able to do them without direction. And that's what I find in the vast majority of my practice. Most of my patients, female patients, can't do Kegels without directed guidance. Yes. Guys, sure. Like we all know how to stop our stream. We've done it a million times. That's easy. Most of my female patients cannot target muscle groups without direction. And that's where, again, physical therapy becomes such a vital component of in the treatment process. Totally. I love that you led us down to that because I feel like in... Um, our language of how we would use cues to be able to guide a, a patient to recruit their pelvic floor is really important. Um, in the beginning of my pelvic floor pathway, I would use a cue that was, um, you're going to squeeze your pelvic floor area like you're trying to hold in a fart. And it's a perfect cue. Well, it used to be a perfect cue in a way. I liked it in the beginning because it's a universal thing. Like we've all been in a situation where we need to fart and we're going to hold it in. 
So it's, it has like a dual meaning behind it though, because the patient is always going to laugh at that. It's always going to laugh. It's always going to relax them one more notch. Um, and they're like, oh yeah, I can do that. And it's like the recognition happens and they connected. And they get it? Yeah, they get it. Can well, you, Can you work on my partner with that? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'd love to. Um, yeah, they. it's like the light bulb will go off because all of a sudden their brain and their pelvic floor muscles connected and they felt it. And so then they may have a terrible coordination though, you know, and that's when I'm internally assessing and palpating, mm-hmm. like what is really the levator and I able to do at this point? Um, if I've assessed it, like we were talking about palpation skills. Yeah. If I've already felt, you know, that guitar string of tension mm-hmm. where there's high tone and, um, and I know that that's foundational, then I still want them to try to practice holding in a fart because I want to see what happens after they've tried that contraction. Okay. And after they've tried that contraction in a breath or two or three breaths where I can feel like what is moving here at all? And are they able to get any proprioceptive input at all just from my finger palpating? Um, the holding of a fart is universal male and pelvic cue, male and female pelvic cue, I feel like. But there's been a lot of exploration I've done in language of being able to visualize their pelvic floor better. So I will say sometimes like, okay, imagine your pelvic floor is a trampoline and a little, like you are a little girl jumping on that trampoline and I want them to be able to imagine that trampoline bouncing down and lengthening. Yes. And then rebounding up with all the power and strength and boom, you're up in the air. It's a great analogy. And it works so well. And it's an emotional and cognitive connection. They're thinking about themselves as this joyous little girl on a trampoline. They're being able to tap into the morphology of their pelvic floor, how it expands and lengthens when it's relaxed, and how it contracts when we need it to go into strength phase. Um, and they're able to kind of use that visual landscape in their mind. So I love playing with metaphors, visual language, different cues that I can see the, whether it's resonating with that particular person or not, you know, based on their whole history and their selves. No, that's awesome. So that's a really fun thing to do, um, in terms of, discussing it, talking about it, bringing light to it, seeing it in different ways. Um, but I do want to mention the power of sitting in a circle of women who are either dealing with incontinence or dyspareunia or, you know, whatever it is that is limiting their quality of life when they're talking to each other about it openly and in a safe space and they feel heard and they feel like, oh, she's going through this experience too. What helped you? Well, I found this and it's such a growth and connective experience that it does start to release those barriers of shame, stigma, and, and they're learning. Very powerful. Mm -hmm. I want to start a women's circle with pelvic floor PT talk, a nutritionist coming in to talk about what we're putting in our bodies 
and a mental health professional to talk Amazing. about positive psychology approach. And I think, right, that's That'd like great. interdisciplinary. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about pain. For sure. Mm-hmm. Because we need those variables in there. Absolutely. Um, and then we need to get to the level where we can make that like a free group, right? Like yeah. come to the, we want to call it um, pep in your step. Pep in your step. Because you the go. P is pelvic floor, the E is eating mindfully, and the P is positive psychology. Nice. Pep. So, yeah. Get a little pep in your step. Nice. nice. I like it. I like <laughs> so, it. So if we could do that on a mass level. That'd be great. Right? Yeah. Women's education. There you go. Okay. So I've had so much fun in this conversation. Thank you, great. Dr. It's been Ryan. Great. Um, I want to end on this question. So we've talked a lot about the conservative approaches. Right. And um we hit on a little bit, which I do want to delve into further in another podcast with the surgical and pharmaceutical sure, approaches. Sure. But I want an example, if you can think of a case that had a really excellent outcome with a conservative approach. Okay. Yeah. So, um, there was, uh, one day at the gym, one of my gym mates came up and tapped me on the shoulder. He's like, I know what you do. And you know, we've all been this gym for a while. He's like, can you see my wife? He's like, we, we can't have sex. He's like, it's just shut down. Can't happen. And I was like, absolutely, I'd be happy to. And immediately I was thinking, okay. Uh, and this was like when I was doing CrossFit and I was like, I almost already know what's going on even before I saw her. Right. And so she came to see me and just like we discussed, completely upregulated right. pelvic floor muscle, musculature, every muscle group, exquisitely tender, levators, piriforma, well, I mean, Listen, my fingers aren't long enough to palpate the piriformis. Obturators. Yes. Um, oh, we hate just those obturators exquisitely, when they get angry. Exquisitely tender. Yeah. And like not quite to the point, even in the troidal muscles, like not quite to vaginismus, but like just shy of it. Right. And I was like, girl, I know exactly what's going on with you. Um, and so I started on some suppositories, sent physical therapist which is what I do most of the time when I see this. And then it's like months, because again, what you guys do is months of work. Yeah, right? it takes time. So I kind of forget, I, you know, I, and I don't think about it anymore because I, yeah, I'm great at, dis at disassociation. So I see him at the gym, I see yes. him at the gym, I'm like, I don't think anything of it. It's months later, he comes back, taps me on the shoulder again, and he's like, thank you, man. He's like, it's like normal again. <gasps> he's like, sex is great, everything's good. And I was like, yeah, you just, you know, you just have to like identify the problem. And, yes. and this is where I find that physical therapists are miracle workers, especially pelvic floor physical therapists, because this is so underdiagnosed and I'll even go further and say misdiagnosed Yes. and they're setting down every avenue other than what they need. And once it's identified and they get directed therapy, they do a 180 and they're golden again yes. with the caveat that it's going to require some maintenance, right? you know, periodic maintenance. But that's probably one of the, like the, like, like sad man, elated man. Right. Yes. And I, again, I'm not focusing on the man. The, the really, the, the beauty of the, of the scenario was the change in, in the, in the female, in the woman, right? That like she totally. 
was so much better. Her life was better. Um, I just interacted more directly with yeah. her, you know, with the husband, but, yes. um, you changed their lives and you know, you guys did, the, <laughs> I diagnosed you guys were the therapists. And so this is why I feel like we can't do enough to raise awareness on this condition right? and the utility of pelvic floor physical therapy for this type of, of pelvic floor pelvic floor muscle dysfunction. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And I definitely, I would love to have you back to delve a little deeper. Into let's do, let's talk about stress incontinence. Let's talk about prolapse. All the juicy Let's talk about other, other pelvic floor disorders. We a lot goes even, wrong down there. How do we not even say the word prolapse in this entire podcast? I don't know. Even, even if I should have taken that apple, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so next time, tune in for some more juicy topics. There you go. And then we'll talk about sex more. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to sure. say vagina. Vagina. 50 times. <laughs> <laughs> this has been fun. I Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. We loved having you. Thank you, Dr. Ryan. 